Grab your Bibles once again. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to pick back up our series. We've taken a few weeks off. Uh, we've, Jess and I have been a bit busy with baby number three, and so we've taken a little bit of time away, but we're going to get right back into it. Um, so we're at John chapter 1. We're going to finish out John's prologue, which is the first 18 verses of, of uh, John's book, John's gospel. So look with me at John chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 14. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen here. Let me read this for us. John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Um, you know, it's funny. If you would have asked me two, three years ago, if I ever would consider moving into a you know, preaching or teaching ministry, I would have laughed in your face. And I would have walked away you know, like shuddering at the thought of ever doing that. And let me tell you why. Because I used to think... How can somebody come up week after week after week after week and come up with something to say? Um, and then, as I've been doing this now for about a year and a half, and what I've come to realize is the challenge is not what do you come up with to say, but it's what do you not say. Um, some of you guys wish I would do a better job at that, right? I wish I would cut more, but... The reality is that there's so much to talk about. There's so much depth to the scriptures. The real challenge is, what do you cut out? There's, there's so much deep, beautiful, profound, life-changing, eternally significant truth packed in the scriptures. And this is uh, evidence A. These five verses that we're going to look at today are just packed full of, of tremendous truths uh, that are important for us today to look at. But, but alas, I have only a matter of minutes. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at three very simple things today. Three things. Number one, John says in these five verses, he, he, he clarifies the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and our response to Jesus. Actually, you know, these five verses, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't met many of you here today. I don't know your history with church. If you don't know much about uh, the Christian faith, you have come to the right service because what this is, this gets down to the basics, we're going back to the basics today. This is utterly foundational. This is one of those quintessential passages in the scriptures that really teach the, 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 the core, the foundation of what the Christian faith is. So let's look at that. The identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and how we respond to Jesus. So let's first look at his identity. Now, I don't know if any of you guys uh, saw at the checkout stand this last week, but I saw on Thursday or Friday night, I was at the, the checkout stand at the grocery store, and Life magazine um, has a big picture, like, of the, like a big painting of Jesus on the cover, and then on the bottom of the magazine it says, who do you say that I am? The entire issue of Life magazine is dedicated to answering that question, who is Jesus? Isn't that interesting that a guy who lived, his public ministry was three years, that's it. Three years of public ministry, halfway across the world, 2,000 years ago, and still one of the primary questions that is asked is, who was Jesus? Who was that guy? You know Larry King? I don't have this written down here. You're in for some trouble today. Um, <laughs> Larry King 
uh, the great interviewer, was asked once, if you could interview anybody and ask them any question, uh, what would it be? And do you know what he said? He said, if I could ask anybody one question, I would, I would ask Jesus Christ if he was actually, truly virgin born. If, if Mary actually was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. Because the answer to that question says everything. If, if, if she had never been with a man, then that means that Jesus was not some mortal human being. And if Jesus is God, that means everything. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, I, I've only had a chance to just kind of peruse through the Life magazine. I've read just a little bit. But what you're going to find if you look through it is you're going to find that it's going to say the same thing that all of the Discovery specials and all the National Geographic specials and all this stuff, you're going to find it right at Christmas time. There's going to be magazines that talk about this right around Easter. There's going to be lots of hype about Jesus. And this is typically what people will say. And this is what you're going to find in Life magazine. is that They get together a bunch of writers and they chime in and they say, well, you know, the whole Jesus being God thing, that's probably not how Christianity got started. Okay, what, 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 you know, Jesus was a good teacher. He was probably, you know, a prophet, if you can use that word. He was definitely a, a great moral example. But this whole Jesus being God thing, that was probably, you know, started later. You know, we embellish the stories. They turn more into fiction than fact. Um, Jesus, they say, you know, Jesus, you know, if you really look at the scriptures, he never really claimed to be God. And his family and his disciples definitely never believed he was God. Um, you know, it probably just started years later. But we're going to look in here, right, in these five verses. We're going to challenge that theory today by looking at what John, remember we talked about John at the beginning of the series. John was Jesus' closest friend on the planet. John had unprecedented access to, to Jesus. Um, and so he, he declares very clearly, actually four times, we're going to look at three, three times in these five verses where he's going to, he's going to explicitly state Jesus is not some mere mortal man. He's not just some great teacher or a good moral example. He is God himself, God in the flesh. And we'll talk about why that's significant. All right, so let's look at the first. Verse 14, again, the, very, the first five words of these five verses. And the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. Now, if you weren't with us early on in the series, um, that term might be a little confusing. The word became flesh. What in the world does that mean? So, remember, John is writing here. John is writing this book to two people groups. He's writing to the Jews, and he's writing to the Greeks. All right, And the Greek and the Hebrew cultures are about as different as they're going to come. But John brilliantly was able to find this one common ground between these two cultures, and this one common concept. We talked about this early on. This is going to be a bit of a review for you if you were here. But there's this, this common concept. Uh, it's the word. And, and both of these cultures are going to come at this concept from two very different angles. Okay? Um, but they're, they're, both paths are going to lead them to Jesus. To the Hebrews, the word, the word was absolutely foundational. Through God's word, God's spoken word, he bound himself to his people, to the Hebrews, right? Remember God's covenant with Abraham. He bound himself to them. Through God's word given to the prophets, he gave them the principles within which they were to live, okay? Uh, God's word um, had active and creative power. Remember God, God spoke the world into existence. The Bible says that God is going to execute justice through the breath of his mouth, all right? So when the Hebrews heard John say that, that the word uh, became flesh, they're, they're hearing that, that this, this guy, Jesus, he, he, is, uh, uh, he is God's um, 
you know, he's, God is making a new covenant people. He is expressing his character and acting on their behalf. This is a tremendously profound statement to the Hebrews. I think it's hard for us to understand really the power of what John is saying here to the Hebrews. But then for the Greeks, I told you, they're going to come at this term from a different angle. When the Greeks considered the word, or in their language, logos, remember this is, John wrote this book in, the, in Greek. So when he wrote this, it says, it, it, he said, the logos, um, the Greek saw it through the lens of philosophy. Okay? The Greek term logos was coined by a philosopher named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus was a philosopher before you know, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and all those guys. Uh, Heraclitus devoted his life to answering this question. What is, what is the logos? What Heraclitus saw was he, he looked at the world all around him and he saw this chaos and he saw this diversity and he saw this constant fluctuation, this constant movement. And Heraclitus sa- said, there must be something Behind all of this chaos and all of this diversity, there must be something that could unify everything together and give it a purpose, give it a reason. That, again, that's why we have our university. It's to find unity in diversity. Okay? So, so, so Heraclitus stepped back and said, there must be something behind all of this. There must be a purpose. There must be a reason. Because what Heraclitus realized, please hear me, what Heraclitus realized is that if, if, if that everything in existence, everything has to operate in accordance with its logos. Everything has to operate in accordance with its reason for being. So um, if, if you don't operate within uh, you know, your, your logos, your reason for being, then what's going to happen is ineffectiveness, frustration, emptiness, discouragement, uh, destruction, disintegration. Um, think about it. If you were to go home today after the service, and you were to go home and you were going to want to go home and watch whatever sport is on this season. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that would be. Uh, you're going to go try, watch, whenever you're going to go home and try on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Let's start, let's do that. All right. You go and sit down and you reach over and you grab the device and you start to turn, you know, to try to turn the channels. And you realize that what you grabbed was not actually the remote. You grabbed the calculator. Okay. You grabbed the calculator and you start clicking the buttons and you're like, why won't this move? Right. Why won't this work? Okay. What, what, what's going to happen if you try to use a calculator to change the channels on the TV? A whole lot of nothing. And it's just going to lead you to frustration. Why? Because the calculator was never built to change TV channels. It's just going to frustrate you. Take it a step further. Let's say that after the, the nine-hour trilogy marathon, you go out to the, your, your backyard and you're, I'm going to continue the project that I've been starting. And so you take that calculator and you go out and you try to hammer nails. What's going to happen to that calculator? It's going to break. It's going to fall apart. It's going to disintegrate. It's going to be destroyed. Why? Because the calculator was never built to hammer nails. And so what Heraclitus, Heraclitus realized that maybe perhaps the reason why we experience frustration and emptiness and disintegration and destruction is because maybe we are not operating in that for which we were created. Maybe we haven't found our logos. Maybe we don't know why we exist, what our reason for being is. We're not living in that every single day, and that's why we experience the things that we do. And so there began this, all this debate for centuries. What is the logos? What were we created for? How do we experience the fullness of life and the fullness of joy? And, and I'll tell you, by the time John showed up on the scene with this gospel, the, the, the Greek philosophers had all but given up. Um, I, we don't have time to go into all that, but, but they had all but given up. And then John walks on the scene with this book. And then he starts off his book, this gospel narrative, John 1.1. 1, 1, he says, the logos was in the beginning. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And then you, you jump down a few sentences to where we are in verse 14, and he says, The Logos became flesh. 
Do you hear what he's saying? The reason for your life, the reason for your existence, it's not some abstract philosophical concept. It's a person, and his name is Jesus, and he walked the earth. Um, I've got to start following my notes. Bear with me. So John is saying, again, he's just, he's just you know, these guys in Life magazine, eh, he was just a good teacher. Just some guy who gave some good suggestions on how to live life. John, his best friend, just said, he's not just some good teacher. He is, he, very clearly he says in the prologue, he says, he is the author of life. He says, anything that was created was created through this logos, through Jesus. He is the author of your life, and he is the reason for your life. He is the reason you exist today. He is the reason that you are taking breaths as I'm speaking. That's what John's saying. Profound, deep statements. Okay, that's, that's the first. I told him to give you three. These two will be very quick. Uh, jump down to verse 15. He continues talking about the identity of Jesus. John, the author of the gospel, quotes John the Baptist, okay, two different guys, as saying, this was he of whom I said, I being John the Baptist, this was he of whom John the Baptist said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So let's, let's make sure we're all on the same timeline. John the Baptist, his parents were Elizabeth and Zechariah. Does anybody remember who Elizabeth's cousin is? Mary, that's right. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth and Mary are cousins. Who got pregnant first, Elizabeth or Mary? Elizabeth. Which means John the Baptist is Jesus' second cousin, older second cousin. Okay? John the Baptist is older, but you see what he said here is Jesus, although he came after me, he ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, before Jesus was born, before I was born for that matter, Jesus was. Jesus existed. He existed prior to his birth on this earth. Okay? One more. Uh, verse 18. This, I'm not even going to have to clarify this. I'm just going to read it to you and that's going to be it because it doesn't get more explicit than this. If anybody ever asks you, oh, really, where did Jesus claim to be God? Or where did, where did any of his close followers claim that he was God in, in their lifetime? Point him to John 1, 18. Okay? This is what it says. You have to look closely, though. This is a little confusing, the way the structure is written. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who is the only God who is at the Father's side? Jesus. John just straight up says, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him the Father known. Now, we're not going to break into the Trinity because it also says that the, the, the Father is God. We, we talked about that week two of this series. You can go back and listen to that where we talk about that a bit more. We're not going to talk about that. All I'm simply saying is John has explicitly called Jesus the only God. Okay? So very clearly, um, you, know, as we, you know, Jesus... Um, didn't you know, just come in with some new teaching. He didn't just come in living this life that we should you know, model ours after. Uh, the, the disciples weren't simply pointing to this new teaching. They were pointing to a person. Jesus is God in the flesh. That is Jesus' identity. And as we progress through the book of, of John, you're going to see that Jesus is going to say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. He's going to say, I am God. I have come. I am, is what he's going to say. I think seven or eight times he's going to use the word I am, which is the, the Old Testament uh, uh, proclamation of God. So, we ask the question, what does Jesus' claim to be, to be God mean to you and to me today? What does that matter? 
Why are we spending our time talking about it? What does it matter that Jesus claimed to be God? Well, I'll tell you, it means everything. For first, the only logical way for you and for me to respond to the claims that Jesus is God is extremely. There's a period right there. Extremely. Um, the average person in America, in fact, probably many of you in here today, like Jesus. You like him. Okay? Um, what I'm trying to get to, to, to you to understand today is you can't just like Jesus. Jesus straight up said, I'm God. He said, I am God. And, and, and if he's not God, then that makes him a crazy person, a madman. So why do we take his teachings as this ultimate you know, example to follow? Or it makes him a liar and he's deceitful. He's a deceiver and we shouldn't respect him a bit. Or on the other hand, if he is God, if he is being truthful, then everything about your life now has changed. Everything about your life needs to revolve around him and not you, not about anything else. If Jesus is God, then everything is revolved around him. John Stott, in his book, uh, Basic Christianity, he pointed out, he said, if you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels, what you're going to see is that nobody who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. Nobody ever had a moderate reaction to him. There's only three reactions you're going to find that people have to Jesus. Number one, they'll, they'll hate him and they'll try to kill him. Secondly, they'll be afraid of him and they'll try to run away from him. Or third, they will be so taken with him that they will just throw themselves at his feet and give their whole lives to him. That, those are the only three reasonable, those are the only three reasonable reactions to someone like Jesus. You hate him and you try to kill him, you run away, you, you're afraid of him and you run away from him, or third, you absolutely fall head over heels for him because of his beauty and his worth, and you, you throw yourself at his feet and you give your whole life to him. That's, that's, that's the only reasonable thing to do. The only reasonable three things. You either crown him or you condemn him. But there is no more room for coming to Jesus as just an interesting guy or a good example. Jesus said he's God. And so listen, let, let's take it real personally. If you're here today and you're convinced, maybe you haven't let everybody know that, but if in your own heart you're convinced that Jesus is not actually God, then what I'm encouraging you to do today is to start being consistent with your life. Start being consistent. Um, if you're convinced that he's not God, then that makes him, in your mind, either a liar or a lunatic. And if that's the, and then we're all just in here drinking the Kool-Aid. If he's not God, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then stop coming to church, sleep in on Sunday mornings, and go out to breakfast. Don't give your money to, to this. We're just, we're, we're crazy people following a liar or a lunatic. Be consistent with your life. But if he is God, if he is God, then there is no more room for holding God at arm's length. There is no room for holding Jesus. Here, when he says something, he doesn't give you a suggestion. He doesn't use the word please. I don't remember ever reading the word please in Jesus' words. They're not options. If Jesus is God, there is no room for half-hearted, lukewarm, apathetic faith. Period. If Jesus is God, as John claims... I want you to think about something else. I want you to think what this means. I'm going to talk to you in here that are, that are uh, people that are walking with Jesus. You, you've given your life to him. You're walking with him. If Jesus is God, as he claims, you have got to start getting a bit more optimistic, <laughs> a bit more optimistic about your life. You have to start to get, you've got to start getting a bit more optimistic about your present circumstances and your future. 
If Jesus is the all-powerful, beginningless God of the universe, then he has made his home in your heart, and he has made this promise. He said, he said I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And, and if that's the case, if Jesus is who he says he is, and, and he has come into your heart, you've given your life to him, and he has made his dwelling in your heart, and he has made that promise, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, then why do you live in such fear every single day? Why are you living in such fear? Why is it so hard for you to get up out of bed sometimes? Because you're worried about facing the day. Don't you know who's with you? I, I, I get, frankly, I get, I get frustrated. I, I, I've had these same concerns. I get frustrated hearing people say, I'll never be able to, I've just kind of, I've just kind of accepted the fact that I'll never be able to beat this one sin. I've just, you know, that's just the way, it, it is what it is. No, it's not. Let me, do you believe that, do you believe that Jesus, I'm, I'm, don't answer me out loud, but I actually want you to think about this in your head and answer yes or no in your head. Do you actually believe that Jesus healed the sick? Actually, reality. Do you believe that Jesus healed the sick? Do you believe that at, at the mere mention of Jesus' name that, that demons shrieked and ran away? Do you believe that Jesus actually encountered, engaged with, and, and forgave and restored the worst of sinners? And don't say that I'm the worst sinner. You're not the worst. Anybody in here ever gone into somebody's house and dragged them out and, and had them put to death because they were a Christian? Anybody? No? Anybody gone, anybody gone off and, and, and found one of your best friend's wives and had an affair with her, got her pregnant, and then killed your best friend? Anybody ready to admit that? No? Okay. You got nothing on these people in the Bible that Jesus healed. Anybody believe that Jesus healed and restored the worst of sinners? Anybody believe that Jesus actually, through, through the Spirit, rose from the dead? Do you, do you actually believe, please hear me, do you actually believe, as Romans 8 says, that the same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead now lives in you? It's not Holy Spirit light. It's not the beta version or whatever. It's the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, if you are a Christian, lives in you. Do you believe that? So then why do you wake up with the fear every day? Why do you wake up so pessimistic that you're ever going to be able to change your habits or gain victory over that sin? Of course you don't have the power, but he does, and he's made his home in your heart. The biblical definition of a Christian is someone in whom God has made his dwelling. If you were a Christian in, here today, then, then God has made his dwelling in your heart. He has made you, you, you home. You walk forward today with that kind of power. Actually, I'm going to give you homework today. Um, this next week, when you, uh, when you go home and you know, you're fine five minutes, this week, I want you to read Romans chapter 8. Read it in its entirety, and I want you to read it and, and believe it. What Paul says in Romans 8 is he says over and over, he says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? He said, don't you? He say, he's saying if, if Jesus is God, then, then, and he's made his home in your heart, then Christ is in you. You don't need to fear. What he says, you don't need to fear. Angels or death or, or demons or, uh, or any other power. He says, you don't need to fear tribulation or, or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, or sword or danger. Why? Because Christ, God, has reconciled us to the Father. He now lives in us. He gives us a hope and a future. He says that we are conquerors through him who loved us. See, this is why it's so important to understand where the word became flesh. Our hope and our peace and our faith does not simply lie in some philosophical concept. Our, our hope and our peace and our faith does not lie in some moral teaching that if we just work hard enough, then we can get there. Our hope and our peace rests in a person. 
that you could see, you could touch, you could experience. It's in a person. And that person, if you give your life to him, he takes his spirit, he, he makes his home in your heart, and he empowers you to live each and every single day for his glory. So here's, when you open your eyes tomorrow morning, you're laying in bed whatever time you wake up, and you open your eyes, I want you to get out of the bed with a thought, with this thought. I am loved and I am accepted by God completely. Not because of what I did yesterday and not because of what I'm about to accomplish today. I am loved and I am accepted by God completely based on what Jesus has done, based on who Jesus is. And so now I can, doesn't, I can face anything today because it's his spirit that lives inside of me. He loves me. He lives in me. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit, and he has promised he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He is passionately committed to conforming me to the image of his son, and I can walk through anything today because I know that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? If Jesus is God, that means everything, not just for your eternity, not just if you're going to go to heaven or hell when, you, when your eyes close on this earth and pass on to the next. If Jesus is God, that means everything for how you handle today. Let me read one passage of scripture as we move on. This is a paraphrase of Colossians 1. comes out of the Message Bible. We look at this sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it uh, uh, came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. He was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the brokenness and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. That's the identity of Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Second, let's start look at the mission of Jesus. John says twice here in these five verses, he says that Jesus came with grace and with truth. Grace and truth. And again, I told you, this is, this is, we're getting down to the, the foundation of the, of the Christian faith here. This is what the gospel is. It's grace and truth. Um, the truth is that we are sinners deserving condemnation. Grace is that Jesus bore that condemnation for us. Very simply. The Christian message is that I am so evil that Jesus had to die for me. Yet, I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's the greatest truth in the history of the world. I am so evil that Jesus had to die for me. I am so loved and I am so valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's the gospel. And I know in a room this size, we're bound to have some folks here that disagree with one or both of these statements, and that's okay. But let me, let me just break those two down and try to explain what I mean here. If I were to ask you, I have, I have a feeling that a, a, a good portion of you are going to say, you know, yikes, really, you know, you're, you're going to call yourself evil, right? I, I wouldn't go that far. If I were to ask most of you, you'd say, you know, I, I'm a good person. I, I'm, when it comes down to it, I'm a good person. Sure, I think there is evil in the world, there is bad in the world, but I'm not it. Um, I'm going to argue with you today. Um, I, I've actually said that before. I've, th- several years ago, I did some pretty dumb stuff, and I got called a lot of names by a lot of people. And in, 
And I remember thinking, I remember being really offended by that. I remember thinking, you know, well, yeah, I did some dumb stuff, um, but I'm not a bad person. I just made bad choices. I'm not a bad person. I just made bad choices. But over the years, uh, as I've come better, to better understand the scriptures and to, to take a deeper, closer, more honest look at my heart, what I've come to realize is I don't just sin, I'm a sinner. I don't just do evil things sometimes. If I'm left to my own devices, I'm actually an evil person. That's not, that's not a very, you know, popular thing to say. You say, man, poor Philip, man, his low self-esteem. Um, I, I'm going to, so are you. Okay? Baby dedication is when we have everybody come. We have all kinds of guests here. I'm just trying to figure out how many people can I get never to come back to our church. Um, and I'm doing a, a tremendous job so far. But I'm serious. Again, this is, this is a, a really sobering reality. But it's something we must come to grips with. And if you can't come to grips with it, you'll never move past this. You're trapped. If you can't accept that, that, that you don't just do bad stuff, you're a bad person. I mean, that's, I know that's a terrible thing to say. Let me quote somebody else. David, Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. There is none who does good, not even one. And again, most of you are going to say, well, no, no, no. You know, yeah, I lie, but it doesn't make me a liar. Or, yeah, I take things that don't belong to me, but that doesn't make me a thief. Um, the Bible says that we are, by very nature, children of wrath. That's what the Bible says. We are, by nature, it means what, what, the essence of us. That's what by nature means. The very essence that makes us who we are. We are, by nature, children of wrath. David says, in another place, he says, Surely I was brought forth in iniquity. Iniquity is sin. Surely I was brought forth in sin. Um, contrary to what, your culture will, what our culture tells us, it is not our environment that trains us to do what's wrong. Now, listen, your environment may act as fertilizer to help some of these things grow. It might help manifest some of these things. But it's not your environment that, that, that teaches you how to do what's wrong. Your sin comes from your heart. Anybody, by the way, who has kids knows this to be very true, right? I have three children under the age of five, all right? I don't teach my kids. My kids, my daughter has never seen me go, you know, I never taught my daughter how to hit my son, okay? I don't hit my son often. Um, just kidding. Um, but seriously, you don't have to teach kids how to do what's wrong, do you? You have to teach a kid to do what's right, you don't teach a child how to do what's wrong, how to test boundaries. You have to teach them how to do what's right. Let me read you one more. Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, don't judge us. We know you're a just God, but don't show justice because I know that nobody living on earth can stand uh, not guilty can stand righteous before you. And we resonate well with this one. We love justice in, in, in America, don't we? We love justice. 
Um, how many TV shows now are built around detectives, courtrooms, and lawyers? There are pretty much three types of television shows on right now. There's reality shows, there's doctor shows, and there are shows based on law and justice. Okay, that's what you got. We actually have, if you, you know, sick home from work one day and you stay home in the middle of the day, you're going to find half a dozen TV shows where you just literally sit and watch a judge, like Judge Judy, listen to cases and cast judgment. Like that's, there's a whole, court TV is an entire channel dedicated to law and justice. All right, we love it. But I want you to hear what David said. He said, you want to see what justice is? He says, he's asking God, please Stay your judgment because I know that every person who walks on this planet will be found guilty, is deserving of condemnation. Um, So again, I don't enjoy saying this. This isn't a fun topic for me to talk about, but it does need to be said. I believe that both the scriptures and experience, if you're honest, and by the way, there's there's a whole lot of ways that you can avoid being honest. There's a whole lot of things that can help distract us from being honest. Go buy a new phone. Just just go buy a new phone. Check your check your, your, your news feed on Facebook. Okay? All kinds of things to help, help us feel better about ourselves just for a quick second. To help distract us from being honest and, and understanding where we are. Um, the Bible is, scriptures and experience will tell us that your issue is not simply that you do bad things, but your issue is who you are. Um, the Bible doesn't just say that we are scuffed up and with a bit of effort and a bit of polish and a bit of discipline that we could clean ourselves up. The Bible says that you are actually corrupted to the core. You are dead in your sin. And a dirty hand, listen, a dirty hand cannot clean up a surface. All you're going to do is just smear the mess around. We have to start with that truth. You've got to get that into your core if you're going to go anywhere. And again, I do, I do know that some of you in here, I see you nodding your head. Some of you in here get that. Others of you think that I am deluded, and that's okay too. I've made my peace with that. All right? Others of you in here agree with me in theory. And you say, yeah, man, you're right, Philip. Um, there, there's a lot of messed up people in here. Okay? You think I'm talking about everybody else but you. I'm talking to you. Listen to me. I'm talking about you. I'm saying that your only hope, every person in this room, your only hope for salvation, the gateway to freedom and joy is accepting that reality. I know I've spent a lot of time on that, but it's because our culture spends each day, every day, telling you how beautiful and how perfect you are. What I'm telling you is that you're ugly. (laughs) I don't know. We need to move on. Your only gateway to freedom and joy is the understanding that we were brought forth in sin and that our natural bent is toward rebellion. And the truth is that nothing in this world can save you. Nothing in this world can save you. You are beyond repair from anything in this world. But that's the beauty of this verse, and that's the beauty of Christmas, is that God punched a hole in the ceiling of our world, and he came in. Nothing in our world could save us, so God himself came into our world. That's the beauty of Christmas. Jesus did not come 2,000 years ago to bring judgment. He came to bear the judgment. He did not come. Remember, David said, God, please don't judge us. Don't show justice. Have mercy. Jesus did not come 2,000 years ago to bring judgment. He came to bear it. John 3.16, we all know and love this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Right? That's a great verse. Right? We all know it. We all love it. Um, it often overshadows the very next verse, John 3.17. John 3.17 is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. John 3.17, it's, it's one of those verses where I actually remember the first time that I heard that verse. Now, I had read that verse in the past. I'd probably heard it taught on or whatever. But I remember the first time that I heard that verse. 
You know what I mean? Have you guys ever had that? It just so moved you. It penetrated you. It just shook you. I remember when I first heard it, I was, it was a Wednesday night. And it was a Wednesday night, and I was leading a worship at a prayer service in West Palm Beach, Florida, where my family and I used to live. And I was, we were playing quietly. We moved into a time of open sharing of Scripture, where just people from the congregation, uh, just a couple hundred people, would, would just kind of stand up right where they were, and they would share a favorite passage of Scripture. And I remember playing quietly, listening to people as they and I was just, if I was being really honest, just I was listening with a very callous, insensitive heart to these scriptures because at that point in my life, I had a lot of unconfessed, undealt with sin in my life. And the Holy Spirit during that time had just been convicting me and speaking to me, but I was just like this. I mean, I had just gotten used to putting my hands over my ears to the Holy Spirit to the point where I was actually, I felt like I was going spiritually deaf. My heart was growing tremendously hard to the point where I just, I used to fantasize, what would it be like to hear from God? What would it be like to actually open the Bible and feel like God was actually talking to me? Right? But I was just so stubborn and rebellious that I just kept my, my hands over my ears. And then that night, I'm playing this guitar and people are just sharing scripture. And then this man, this Haitian man, a friend of mine, stood up and he, and he looked at me. And I, I remember feeling like his eyes just like pierced through me. He just stood up in the front and he said, John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I felt like that scripture like punched me in the gut. And I remember my, my knees just started like shaking. I remember I, I felt, I, I just kind of buckled at my knees and I fell down and I just started weeping on that stage. Do you know what? Because I, I, what I came to realize was that God did not want to simply expose and deal with my sin because he wanted to crush me. He did it because he wanted to restore me. He didn't want to, he didn't want to expose me. He doesn't want to, just to destroy me. He wanted to, to heal me. It wasn't long after that that my, my sin was dealt with. My sin was exposed. And for the first time, because during that period of my life, I, for the first time, my sin became real. It wasn't just something that we talked about or whatever. My sin, I, I, again, I took a the deep, long, hard look at my heart. Not just what I did, but who I had become, who I was. And when my sin finally became real, grace finally became real. There's, a, there's an old saying that if your sin is small, your Savior will be small. Well, we know that every person in this room, your sin is not small, right? You might think it is, and that's the problem. If you think your sin is small, that's why your Savior is small. Um, I remember that at that point when my sin was so tangible, I could, it, was, it was, again, it was, my sin was so tangible that people were experiencing it. They were feeling my sin, right? Grace became so uh, tangible that I could feel, I could, I could taste, and I could see. That's why you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Isn't that kind of a weird phrase? But, but when, you, when you've experienced sin for what it is, and then you experience grace for what it is, grace, not just a concept that we talk about or study or sing about, but, but grace that's real, that's tangible, that has skin. See, at that point in my life, grace got skin. Grace got flesh. I could feel it. I could smell it. I could, I could hear it. Grace became real to me. That's what the the word became flesh. You see? For the first time, I understood amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what's so profound about verse 14 is the word became flesh. God's love for us, his character, his will for humanity, his plan was no longer just something that we can talk about or we can study or we can sing about. God's Love and his character and his plan for humanity got flesh in the person of Jesus. 
Um, so, Rob Simmons here, a good friend of mine. I'm going to pick on you, okay? Think about it this way. I could, every single Sunday when Rob comes, I could just, I could just grab him. Hey, Rob, hey, I love you, man. I, I love you. So I want you to know we care about you and we love you. Every single week, I say it week after week after week after week. I'd be like, that's, oh, that's sweet, that's nice. But imagine for a second, Rob calls me at, at 2 in the morning. And he's like, Philip, my, my house just burned down. Okay? I would hop in the car, I would drive over to, to Rob's place, and I'd see him standing on the curb watching his, you know, the ashes. And I would, I would pick him up, and I'd take him to our home, and we'd stay up the rest of the night talking and crying together, mourning over the loss of all of these, you know, his, of his home. And then we'd, my family would help him and Connor be able to get back up on their feet uh, for the, in the weeks and the months to come. And we would walk beside them. See, my love was no longer just a concept. My love just got tangible. It was demonstrated. My love just got flesh. This is what, this is what God said. This is, this is what, what John is saying has happened. God got flesh. He demonstrated, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, and he died for us. Please hear me. God so loved us that the all-powerful God made himself breakable. He who had been spirit made himself pierceable. The creator of life allowed himself to be created. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. The one who sustained the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God became a fetus. Holiness slept in a womb. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. God came near. He became flesh, and he did that for you. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived the perfect life, the righteous life that you and I could never live. And what he does is he transfers this perfect record onto us, all the while taking the sins of the world upon himself on the cross, bearing the punishment that belonged to you and me. So you understand what happens. He gave us the riches of his righteousness and took on our debt of sin. That's the gospel. John Stott says this. He says, listen close, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. That's, that's, that's grace and truth. That's grace and truth. You see the paradox. Justice, if you were to define it, justice means getting what you deserve. Grace, by definition, is getting what you don't deserve. It's an unearned gift. It's unmerited favor. Justice means getting what you, what you do deserve. Grace means getting what you don't deserve. At the very same moment on the cross, God pours out the full extent of grace and justice. One of my favorite pictures of that is in the Bible in, uh, in uh, John's vision in Revelation chapter 5. If you've read that passage before, you remember that John, John begins, he's, he's got this vision and he's, he's looking into the, the picture of heaven and he, and he just begins to weep because what he, saw, he sees is he sees these scrolls that are, that are sealed. They've got these seals on them and, and nobody on earth is found worthy to be able to open these scrolls, to, to be able to break these seals. And what would happen is just in a kind of a nutshell, when these scrolls would be opened, this is all symbolic, when these scrolls would be opened, it would usher in this new chapter of, of justice and renewal for the earth. But nobody is found worthy to be able to open up those scrolls. And so John just breaks down and starts crying. He starts weeping. And then one of the elders looks down at John and says, John, stop crying. Stop weeping. He says, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is worthy to open the scrolls. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has been triumphant. And so John, you know, he's got tears streaming down his face. He, he looks up and he looks up to the, the throne and he expects to see this, you know, Aslan-esque, you know, uh, majestic, powerful, uh, ferocious, warrior-like, valiant lion sitting on this throne. And he looks up and what does he see? A blood-stained lamb. John says a lamb that looks like it had been slain, sacrificed. A lamb is sitting there on that throne. Do you understand what that means? The victorious and valiant lion of Judah who brought justice and redemption to the world accomplished it by being led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he did that for you. You never, ever, ever have to question whether or not you are loved by God. He died for you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to bring you into his family. My hope today is that you would understand what he has done for you. I have a whole bunch more, and I'm going to cut all of it right now because we're out of time. But listen, if you don't hear anything else, can, can you just please hear that? God loves you. He loves you. And he, he didn't just say that he loves you. He proved it. He died for you. And the reason why he did that is not like he was just bored up in heaven. I want an adventure. No. He, he does it because he, 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 it was the only way. You know why we value, you know why we make court TV? You know why we value justice the way that we do? Because we're made in God's image and God is just and God just cannot sweep our sin under the rug. But the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death, separation from God. And God loves us and values us and wants, he created us that we might know him and enjoy him. And so the, the wages of our sin is that we would never be able to know him and enjoy him. And God so loved us and so desired a relationship with us that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die in our place. Take that separation that belonged to us upon himself. That's why Jesus said on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God. But the good news is that Jesus didn't just die. Three days later, he rose from the dead. You know what? Remember, we've talked about this before. You know what the resurrection means? The resurrection, it's like, it's like when you get put in jail for a certain amount of time for committing a crime. When you get out of jail, the law no longer has any claim on you. You, you've, you've satisfied the sentence. When Jesus walked out of the tomb three days later, it's because he satisfied the sentence. That's what the resurrection means. It's a big stamp across the universe, paid in full. It's been paid in full. Stop trying to earn your salvation. He already did it. It's been paid in full 2,000 years ago. The gospel is not, the gospel is a historical event. So I, I'm, 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 my hope today is that you'll, I'll just keep going. My hope today is that you'll, that you'll understand what Jesus has done for you and that you'll respond to it. I have to believe that there, in a room of, with this many people that there might be somebody here who has never said yes to Jesus, who, has never, who have never said, yes, I will accept the forgiveness that you are offering. I know what you went through to get it and I accept the forgiveness. I'm ready to be made clean. I'm ready to expose who I am to you and allow you to forgive me and to cleanse me. And listen, when he does that, he makes his home in your heart. Um, and things will never be the same. I feel like I've got to make a disclaimer. If you're going to give your life to Jesus, things will never be the same. They can't be. God makes his home in your heart. He's going to undo you. All right? He's going to build you up into who he has created you to be. And it will be painful. Your, 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 your priorities and your values and your ambitions and your dreams are all going to change. But I'm telling you, you were, he is the Lagos. He is the reason for life. If, if you do not live within the Logos, you will experience frustration, discouragement, destruction, and so on. You want to experience freedom and joy? Live for whom you, you, you've been created. Live the life that he created you to live, and that's only in Jesus. Okay, let's pray.